0: Hello, Canada and the rest of the world, and welcome once again to the Netflix podcast, the show where we review the movies available to stream on Canadian Netflix. I'm Dylan Clark Moore, and joining me here today is one of the hosts of Hold My Order, Terrible Dresser, a fantastic podcast that looks at the 70s and 80s through the lens of its most important cultural artifact, WKRP in Cincinnati. Let's give a big Netflix welcome to Mr. Mike Grasso.
1: Dylan, thanks so much for having me on, and what a great description of my podcast. I'm going to have to steal that from you.
0: Considering how often your guys' hooks get stuck in my head, I think it's only fair for you to, you to take one of mine. That's fine. <laughs> so, uh, I always like to ask, is there anything cool that you've been watching on Netflix recently, Mike?
1: You know, that's I, I, I've listened to a few of your episodes, and uh, I knew that question was coming, and I actually looked to see what I've seen recently that's actually also on Canadian Netflix, because we should probably start off by saying, I'm an American.
0: Yes, so, yes. <laughs> so um. Mike is our first ever uh, 100% not Canadian guest. However, I, the reason I felt that it was okay cause, is because in an earlier episode of Hold My Order Terrible Dresser, uh rob referred to himself as a canadian who wishes he was a yankee and you're a yankee who wishes he was a canadian so it's true you know you you host a half canadian show so for a movie that's made by a a roman guy that's technically a canadian movie it seems appropriate so
1: (laughs) well what i've watched on netflix recently that's also on american netflix it's also on canadian netflix uh is a movie called the wrecking crew um Personally, I use Netflix almost exclusively for documentaries. Um, they have a great documentary section, at least they do in the States. The Wrecking Crew is about the um, group of studio musicians in the 1960s who worked on almost literally every L.A.-based recording. Um, and it's just a great look at you know these hardworking just workmanlike type uh, musicians who were the backbone of all different kinds of music, rock, pop, standards. It's a great documentary, ri- very homey feeling. Um, you get to know these folks. There's a lot of roundtable discussions about their work with famous uh, songwriters and musicians. I highly recommend it.
0: That sounds great. Uh, well, the movie that you are here to talk about, Mike, is from the year 2010, although you wouldn't know what to look at it. <laughs> Directed by director, and I apologize to him in advance for uh, how I'm pronouncing it, but Panos Cosmatos. That's right, Maybe? yep. Perfect. Mm-hmm. We're here to talk about Beyond the Black Rainbow. Before we get into that, I should let you all know that today's episode of the Netflix podcast is brought to you in part by London's 121 Studios, London's premier digital media hub and co-working space. Visit 121studios.ca for more information. So the ways that Netflix describes this movie are uh, kind of unique. We had something come up that's never happened before. So, first of all, when you hover over the title, it says, when telepathic teen Elena flees the mysterious facility where she's been imprisoned her entire life, her unstable therapist relentlessly pursues her. Well, huh. okay.
1: Um, <laughs> that's the last ten minutes of the movie, but that's okay. Yeah,
0: no kidding, right? So... <laughs> So I read the description, and I was like, wait a minute, I I need to go back. And that pursuit, really, it starts at an hour and 35 minutes into this hour and 45 minute movie. (laughs) Like, they're literally cutting to the chase in that case. Yeah, yeah, they are. And this is that unique thing I was talking about. So this is the only time I've ever seen this happen. When you click on the title, the description does not change. They just—they uh, only have copy for—they only have one one copy of copy for this movie because I guess they couldn't figure out a better way to sell it. So that's a good.
1: Well, that, that also might be something worth talking about. Definitely. Mm-hmm.
0: The genres this movie belongs to, according to Netflix, are Canadian movies, thrillers, supernatural thrillers, and sci-fi thrillers. And where normally they would describe some moods that could be attributed to the movie, it just doesn't have any.
1: Very interesting. Well, I mean that that why don't we start talking about that that sort of you know this does this movie defy description in your mind, Dylan?
0: I don't know <laughs> if it defies description. I think it defies salesmanship. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, fair enough.
0: As I was telling people about this movie, having seen it uh, the once now, for the sake of mm. talking to you about it, people are like, well, what's it about? And I go, <laughs> uh-huh. Like, <it's, laughs> there isn't too much of a narrative, and intentionally so, there isn't too much mm. of a, a strict narrative to latch onto to really sell people on the idea. You have to, I mean, what you have to talk about is the experience of watching it and the mood of watching it and the the artistic choices in how you know, what's presented to you on the screen. And that's hard to fit into a tweet long movie description, right?
1: Yeah. I first saw this movie. I first heard about it um, right when it was doing the festival circuit in early 2011. I saw, I think, a review on the AV Club, um, who I went to back then, and probably exclusively for my film criticism. I don't really visit that site anymore, but that's a whole other story. The the description just sounded like it was so what I was into, and I, I really wanted to see it. If you looked at the Wikipedia entry or any of the box office sites, you can see it did five figures in box office. So it literally just appeared in theaters and then disappeared from theaters. I think they knew that this was going to be a home video cult classic type midnight movie that people watch in their darkened living rooms. Um, and, you know, just kind of enjoy and let it wash over them. You know, the first time I watched it on Netflix here in America, the pacing definitely bothered me. It was a little, I felt it was a little too slow. I knew that it was a visual experience. I knew that it was a mood experience, as you say, but my feelings watching it the first time was this is going too slow, even for me, even though this has all the stuff I love in it. Now, I've watched it two times since then, and each time I watch it, not only do I find new stuff in it, but that pacing issue that I had the first time around has has completely vanished, and I do kind of let it just wash all over me.
0: I am always curious to know what brought somebody to a particular title. So, I mean, you had the entire catalog of Netflix available to you, and this was <laughs> your number one choice, so... I mean, obviously there's something in it that speaks to you, so why Beyond the Black Rainbow?
1: Well, you know, there's a lot of reasons. I'm going to go through them all, but let me just kind of start by just going through the setting a little bit of this movie. Um, The very first thing you see on the screen is a very slow uh, revelation of the year that this takes place in. Um, the, uh, The date comes up almost kind of akin to the the way that the Alien title comes up in Ridley Scott's 1979 Alien, um, one number at a time, 1983. And, you know, that's a pretty bold way to start your movie, not only by sort of almost directly referencing one of the classics of late 70s, early 80s science fiction, but also just really setting it in a time and place. And that knowledge that I had from the reviews of the movie I had read knowing that this was meant to look like it takes place in 1983, not only takes place in 1983, but looks like it was made in 1983. These were the things that really intrigued me about it. I think there's been a kind of a cottage industry popping up over the last four or five years of very intentional genre pieces that are made to look like they were made in the 80s. I think it's, again, sort of this, you know, the people who were kids in the 80s, they're in their 40s now, they're making movies, they're making TV shows, um... You know, that attracted me to Beyond the Black Rainbow to start. And now that I've seen a lot of the other sort of 80s pastiches that have come out in the last four or five years, I feel like Beyond the Black Rainbow, beyond any doubt, gets it spot on without being totally derivative, without being slavishly derivative uh, to its sort of inspirations and source material.
0: Yeah, it is incredibly well placed in its time. The costuming is starkly 80s especially when it comes to the eyewear that many of the characters have with their <laughs> their Dwight Schrute glasses um, and the uh you know the clothing that they wear certainly dates it without dating without dating it i mean it, it's it's for a time and it's for a place but the the camera and the film that's used oh. i mean there's this there's this grit to it like there's this uh there's substance to it, it like you very nice. much feel like you're watching something and it's not you, like you said it's not done in a, in a tacky kind of way like this isn't a fun grindhouse movie kind of thing it's just more that when you watch it if if you had asked me when this movie was made I would have placed it in the 70s or the 80s
1: yeah um you know we'll we'll get into the sort of the uh the visuals of the movie I'm sure but I think one of the things you're talking about that grain that that grit in the film you know this movie uses a lot of really just sort of like you know lit walls right like with bright primary colors and anytime you point a camera at something that's being lit from, you know, behind that's being diffused through like a translucent screen or a wall, you're going to get that sort of like aura around it. And, you know, there's lens flare in this movie, but it's not J.J. Abrams lens flare. It's you. They come by that lens flare completely honestly. Yeah. It feels (laughs) organic. It feels like a film, not something shot on digital. And, And again, as, 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 you know, you said, it's, it's hard to place it there are only a few moments where I feel like I'm taken out of the period um, and really honestly those are so minor as to not even be worth mentioning
0: with regards to the dating I think that it's important because of the well I mean I guess we have we have two different time periods that this happens and we have the 1983 yes. which I guess the director very cutely just wanted to say because it's the year before 1984 yeah. <laughs> it's adorable Um, but then we do have that, that flashback scene where we're in the sixties, we're in the middle of this culture of hallucinogenics and finding ourselves by breaking ourselves down and exploring some kind of plane outside of the normal existence that we normally have. Like the, uh, the movie that it reminded me of quite a bit was Altered States. Oh yeah, absolutely. Going into doing the the sensory deprivation chamber and finding something about yourself and finding some kind of truth. Uh, within that, and I mean, I wasn't there in the '60s for sure to know if that's, you know, if that's something that actually happened. But, you know, that's the idea that we have that in the '60s there was this kind of movement towards that. But then, 20 years later from that, what what are the consequences of living that kind of life where you're looking for this instant spiritual connection with the world through chemicals? And what is that? What is that going to translate into? What What does that do to a person when they're trying to take these shortcuts to enlightenment?
1: Yeah, that's a great point, and I think you've kind of just pegged exactly what attracted me to this film, aside from what I had seen in the previews as far as visuals are concerned, and that is, this this film is really about the kind of real-life work that research institutes and individual sort of gurus and uh, others were doing in the 60s, um, yes, using hallucinogens, using drugs, but, you know, also trying to kind of... Um, Plumb the depths of of the human psyche and really try to investigate if if people could harness their mental and and, and physical powers uh, to manifest something beyond what is what is usual. And the moment I heard that it was based around a you know essentially a New Age research institute that's kind of started in the sixties and stretched into the eighties with these kind of creepy weird experiments. I mean, I think you know some of my hobby horses from my podcast. Now this. This plot just completely appealed to me, and you know it, it's a real life thing it wasn't just sort of you know individual folks like Timothy Leary or Ken Kesey or any of the other sort of merry prankster types that were doing this you know the the Defense Department in the United States was doing research into remote viewing and psychic powers um, The Stanford Research Institute uh in California was doing real e s p and psychic testing i mean. It was a product of the counterculture to be counterculture to be sure. Um, the idea that that people had the the capability uh, latent within them to channel these psychic powers, but it, it was also something that edged along the edges of the mainstream in science in the sixties and seventies. And the timing of this movie, the, the the orientation film that you see at the very very beginning of of Beyond the Black Rainbow for the Arboria Institute. When I saw that the first time, my heart just fluttered. It was so perfectly done with the sort of <laughs> the voiceover and the images of nature and, and the way that, uh, you know, Dr. Arborea tells us that we're looking to go into things like energy sculpting and the use of, <laughs> you know, uh, natural uh, drugs to unleash the uh, the mental powers of uh, of the folks at the Institute. It was just... Uh, To me, this is this sort of like plot line was made for me. And I don't think I'm the only one of sort of my generation to be really intrigued by this moment uh, in the aftermath of the 60s counterculture where pseudoscience met science.
0: The experience that I had for I know, obviously, we we see things through lenses that uh, that have maybe recently been introduced to us. But do you uh, do you listen to the Cracked podcast at all? I don't know if that's something that has any appeal for you, but I don't. Okay. Um the, I'm, I'm interested to see where this is going. Okay. Well, they did a uh, <laughs> their most recent episode was talking about uh, the whole idea of a teen rehab camp and that there would be these these groups of these parents who would basically pay to have their children kidnapped and taken to these kind of spiritual camps where they're basically put in the wilderness and and mm-hmm. left essentially on their own to survive with the idea that you know you need to you need to break down your humanity and get to something more essential and more truthful in order to come to some kind of better enlightenment but the point that they bring up is that there's a failure in that logic because in a lot of these cases what's happening is that you're having a traumatic experience and I think I'll be able to tie this back to the movie soon but you have a <laughs> traumatic experience and then the body's way of responding to that trauma is to rationalize it and try to come up with some kind of reason why that trauma happened in the first place. Mm. So then once you have that reason, once you've done the rationalization, you've kind of justified why the trauma happened in the first place, which can then cycle back to, well, if that happened to me and it was so good for me, then let's inflict that trauma on somebody else. And we see that, yeah. I think, with Dr. Niall yeah. in the fact that he, you know, he has this extreme this incredibly uncomfortable but so uniquely stunning hallucinatory experience in the 60s you know when he goes into the black pool which Mm -hmm. very much evoked feelings of uh under the skin which we uh we reviewed a couple of weeks ago just go you know descending into this black goo but yeah he he has this whole experience he comes back out he's changed for it but the, the scientific response is, well, he's he's different and something's come out of this. So let's dump the baby in there too. And let's keep this cycle going and figure out, you know, just if, if it did something, then let's do it again and let's continue this cycle of, of creating this trauma. But then, you know, 20 years later, we see that just because something's well-intentioned doesn't mean that there is good that's going to come from that it doesn't necessarily mean that there's good that's going to come from it you can cause harm you can cause permanent trauma that's going to affect these people for the rest of their lives no matter how good the intentions were in the first place
1: that's a really excellent point i i I feel cosmetos talked about in a couple of interviews that this was his indictment of baby boomers kind of looking for the easy way out spiritually i guess and and um, you know, I think there is a generational metaphor going on here. When I look at uh, Elena, and I and I kind of you know, she's born in 1966, presumably. As you say, she's sort of paying for the sins of of her parents' generation, doing this kind of you know awful unearthly research. You know, she's Generation X, raised in the shadow of the baby boomers. She's, uh, you know, you can see one of her one of her ways of manipulating her environment in her almost bare um, her bare cell is that she's able to change the channels on the TV, presumably with her psychokinesis, you know, just sort of touching the screen. And and there's this sort of sense of the baby boomers, and if you want to talk about research institutes like the Arborea Institute or cults in the 60s and 70s, communes, kids being raised in situations where, uh, you know, the parents were looking to self-actualize and didn't give their children the attention and love they needed. I don't know if you know this, but there's a whole lot of Hollywood actors who were raised by communes and cults in the 60s and 70s. Um, The Phoenix siblings grew up in the Children of God cult, I believe. Winona Ryder's stepfather, not stepfather, Winona Ryder's godfather is Timothy Leary. And we know that a lot of these folks who were raised in these non-traditional type social situations uh, came out of it not so great, uh, a little damaged. I find the symbolism of Elena looking for answers in her TV really poignant in that way and that you know she's looking for some something to raise her and something to nurture her and the only thing she can find is a TV screen which for people who were born in generation X is a pretty powerful metaphor
0: yeah the only agency she has is in the consumption of culture and, yeah, and it's not even culture that was created by her generation; it was created for her generation. Yeah, and the yeah. the the thing that we see her enjoy the most is she's watching cartoons that are from decades even further past. So yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, exactly. A, it's very tragic. Like,
1: did, did you notice the 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 effect that um, Cosmetos uses when um uh when Elena is using her psychic powers? Uh, it's almost like the 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 films. Sp- uh, sprockets and frames are kind of out of whack. Yeah, um, Her face kind of vibrates like a film would if it, it slipped off of its sprockets and I thought that was also meaningful I'm not sh- quite sure what it means but it, it seems to me almost <laughs> like she's, she's trying to destroy the medium that she's existing in almost
0: What I saw that more as is her being out of sync with herself mm. because so much of what she's doing is trying to maintain this control or having control imposed on her so when she finally does get out of the room and we see her slowly slinking down the hallway but there's this you know it's there's either a ghost of her before or a ghost of her catching up afterwards so it's like i said it's like she's almost out of sync with herself and then she's uh you know she has this freedom now but Mm -hmm. she's not sure what to do with it or what that actually means for herself
1: and i think that's really interesting in the sense that that if, if we look at if we look at this film as uh, maybe some kind of meta commentary on film itself. Again, I think that's really, really accurate because Cosmetos himself said, you know, I, I wasn't really allowed to watch any of these, you know, midnight movies that you can get down at the video store, like the Cronenbergs and the and the Kubrick's and all these other sort of, you know, movies when I was a kid, so I just had to look at the, 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 the video box covers and kind of come up with my own way right. of imagining what these films were like. I mean there's a lot of anxiety of influence in this film I, I put in, you know, sort of my prep notes for this, all of the different directors that are sort of name checked or hat tipped here and writers. But I, again, it's not like a movie where it, it's it's all very obvious. It's not a, a you know, a, a Nicholas Winding Refn sort of, you know, overt sort of homage. They're, they're, they're all really subtle and they're all kind of mashed up in a way that that, that make them a, a little bit greater than just a pastiche. But the idea of, uh, like you were saying, like Elena trying to escape, I mean, when you get right down to it, horror movies where there's like a final girl and everything, I mean, Cabin in the Woods kind of did the perfect meta-commentary on that. But, you know, someone who is being this tortured and this sort of trapped it, it is obviously going to try to escape not only the situation they're in, but the almost the medium that they're in. And I think that if we look at Elena as kind of someone who is trying to crawl out of the screen again i don't think it's any coincidence that she looks like uh the girl from the ring in a lot of uh, the scenes oh yeah um crawling out of the tv you know i think that there's something there to that is that the victimhood of of the sort of quote unquote final girl in a horror movie is well trod ground at this point is her sort of final escape um <laughs> so uh accurately p- portrayed in the netflix uh, summary you know, is it a, a commentary on these kind of movies? You know, is Cosmetos saying, yes, I love these, but there's maybe something problematic about them? I
0: don't know. Uh, what I do want to make sure that we talk about, because it's so... I, I can't even say that it's unique to this movie, because mm. it it's really not. And I think that, uh, you know, in your notes, you, you make some really interesting points about what these references might be to. But this movie spends so much time awash in different colors. Yes, um, and you you seem to have uh, quite a bit to say about those, so I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on on why this movie looks the way that it does. Or, you know yeah. is is it just is it just paying respect to to these other movies that have come before? Or, you know do you, do you see more in those colors? I mean, the the movie is called you know, it has the word Beyond rainbow, in the, rainbow t- right? in the title, right?
1: <laughs> so, first things first. I mean, the, when in the first part of the the film, you're you're dealing with a lot of very very sort of deep red surfaces, you know, nobody has walls that red in their own house, you're immediately put in mind this is some kind of weird, you know, institute. Elena herself has a white cell, and she is always clad in white, and Dr. Nile dresses in, at the beginning of the film, you know, sort of dark, muted earth tones, uh, black turtleneck, uh, sort of a, I, I remember, like a brown jacket, uh, tweed, you know, tweed jacket. As the movie goes on, Nile grows out of these sort of muted tones and fits himself into almost like a like a shiny kind of overcoat that's kind of insectoid in a way, and and kind of sloughs off his his sort of you know I'm just a harmless you know therapist and turns into a killer. The uh, the the colors that uh, appear as Elena is trying to escape. It's almost like she's a wash in a new dawn. Uh, this is where the lens flare I mentioned earlier comes in. Um, you feel like there's something very new day about the colors that surround her at that point. I, I also said they're almost amniotic in a way. There's a sort of like rebirth element happening here, and um, you know the the sort of uh, the, the one of the more iconic sort of visual moments is in the air vents uh, trying to escape and it's this very sort of like I would almost call it Terry Gilliam Brazil-esque kind of endless um, (laughs) sort of uh, gray vent but with a weird sort of set of rainbow tubes on the wall um, you know heating ducts or something like that and the thing I put in the notes was it, it reminded me kind of almost like the of the dark side of the moon Pink Floyd cover but like turned from a prism into a tesseract, like just unfolded and folded back on itself into this sort of like, you know, it, it's her way out. You know, she's literally following a rainbow uh to get out of the Arborea Institute and into the real world.
0: Yeah, the feeling that I got from it was that, I mean, I don't have a map laid out in front of me for who's what color. But, right. you know, Dr. Nile is often the screen is red when he's involved, especially yes. when he's when he's feeling emotions or trying to suppress emotions, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. And then there, there, they're often these blue scenes and uh, shit. What's his name? Dr. Um, Dr. Arboria? Yes. But Dr. Arboria. his, his private room gets its own color palette, palette to it as yeah. well. But then uh, when <laughs> Alina starts to come into her own, when she starts to break out of that, that's when the screen is no longer washed or bathed in these colors. We're starting to see a higher fidelity and that's yes. where it, the grit and the grain of the film is a lot less noticeable because it's not against this, this painted background or this, you know, this very clear color. And yes. so it starts to feel more like the real world. And that, because that is what it is. She's, discovering the real world she's getting outside of the influences of the regimens that have been put upon her or the controls that have been put upon her by these other people who despite whatever intentions they might have you know it is it's restrictions she's lived her entire life within this cage so then it's almost like the wizard of oz where instead of just breaking out of one kind of sepia world she's breaking away from various other peoples in order to discover that there's this whole rainbow of color in front of her
1: Oh yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, a couple of things that gets me thinking of. Uh, one, there, there's this wonderful moment after she's been through all of these surreal sort of explorations of the of the uh, the ducts of the Arborea Institute, and she, you know, encounters the sentio knot, which are those sort of disembodied suits that have seem to have 2001 aliens living inside them. Very, very cool stuff. But she finally breaks out into a break room. Like a like, oh, a, you know, it's got room. like a sink oh <laughs> and like a kitchen table and a couch. And it's just it's it's literally the most jarring moment of this film that's full of all of these surreal sets. You're, you're all of a sudden grounded, as you say, in the real world. And obviously, when she gets outside of the arboretum, Institute, there's this big, huge geodesic dome, which kind of, you know, recapitulates all the weirdness we've seen. But that moment where she gets into the break room, she doesn't know what to make of it. And we, as viewers, don't know what to make of it it's 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 the most alien set in the movie, and yet it's the most completely normal,
0: yeah, it was so familiar, and it's such a perfectly constructed set, like you've got yeah. this overcrowded bulletin board that's filled with crap that nobody cares about. You've got a poster <laughs> for the institute on the wall as yeah. if you know putting an eight and a half eleven or by eleven picture of the company that you work for is gonna engender some kind of break room loyalty. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, it was so perfect because it was, you're right, it was so familiar to us watching it, but it was the most alien because even when we go outside of the Institute, when we go That's... to uh, Dr. Niles' home and things like that, mm. the world that he has in his home is still so is so influenced by the rest of that. You know, everything's rigid and angular. And yes. instead you get this perfect room with this gaudy couch and just everything was so perfect. I love that scene <laughs> so much.
1: Yeah, it, it, it just shocks you out of... um the abnormality you've been in and, and throws you into normality. I mean, should we talk about that last 15 minutes or so that was <laughs> quoted in the Netflix? I I, I I said to myself when I first saw this, like I was watching a surreal sort of trippy, um, you know, sort of visual masterpiece. And then all of a sudden a horror movie broke out.
0: Yeah, it really does become a whole different movie. And it was shockingly so because it didn't, it didn't just start to kind of like hint at this other kind of movie. It just yes. went there. Yeah. Like we went. <laughs> so, so much so that the, the character that we had known becomes almost a different character. Like he, we've seen him be this odd, repressed scientist guy who seems to be holding something under his leg. And I honestly despised him at first. And I, I didn't think that it was that I didn't like the character. I thought that it was an awful actor. Oh, Until okay. you get to that point where you see what he's all been through and you're like, oh, you have so much going on under the surface of you that that's why you're not reading is totally normal to me because you are you seem weird because you are weird, but you're weird for a reason. But then after he, you know, peels off his hair and turns into, a, I, I described him as Christian Bale's Voldemort, he turns into a slasher. And he, yeah, it, it's not it's just he just goes for it. And he's stabbing <laughs> people through the like through the bottom of the jaw and into their skull and stabbing people yeah. down the throat with knives and just hitting this whole other plane that it was one of the more exciting sequences to watch in the movie. It's probably well, one of the most stuff happens over the course of that 10 minutes, but it's jarring for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean that first watch I I told you about where I was like, man, get on with it. What's going on? What well, you're right. When that happens, it, it it is kind of like, oh wait a minute, something's happening finally. You know, there's action. There's uh, there's some some measure of suspense as he you know holds the second uh, uh, dude uh, you know hostage. Um, I think there's a few things happening here. I think I think you know on one level, Cosmatos wanted to kind of insert some of that eighty slasher stuff that. Obviously, was part of his sort of genre education, I guess. I think the other thing, though, is that when when I when you invited me onto the podcast, Dylan, I said I want to do a Cronenberg movie. I want to do a Cronenberg movie, and we went on Netflix Canada, and shame of Netflix Canada, there are no David Cronenberg movies on there. It's Netflix
0: Canada, thi- for God's sake. I
1: know, I know exactly, but I think that is where Cosmatos' influence is sort of most vividly felt when uh Niall brings out the devil's teardrop I kind of bounced up and down in my chair because I'm like that is one of the gynecological instruments used for examining mutant women from dead ringers like it was such a clear call out to Cronenberg but it was also fairly subtle I mean they're not virtually they're not exactly the same um visually but there's a big similarity between those weird uh, instruments that jeremy irons uses in dead ringers and the devil's teardrop and i'm like oh so this is where this is going to go he's going to have to use this thing to like you know kill elena or something like that um to make sure the evil that he brought back from the from the black pool doesn't you know uh make it out into the rest of the world it's never mentioned where this dagger came from you know where this ceremonial dagger came from but my feeling is that it's something uh, you know that was sort of designed by him as a instrument of last resort. It makes me think of some of the other weapons in uh, Cronenberg movies, like the flesh gun that uh, uh, Max Wren uses in Videodrome, or the flesh guns that are used in Existenz. You know, it, it's a very sort of like it's a it's a weapon designed to do something. Uh, we don't ever get to see it do anything but kill a couple of you know uh, beer drinking stoners out by the <laughs> fire. But uh, it it's it, it, it's such a clear call back to cronenberg and cronenberg's horror output um that i that all of a sudden everything kind of came together in that last scene I'm like oh he's trying to do an homage to kind of the last 5 minutes of videodrome where max ren goes on a killing spree
0: Well, i'm glad that that did something for you because i couldn't even tell from the shape of it <laughs> what like what he was looking at he just said this ominous sounding name as if it was some kind of really great loot that he found after raiding a uh, you know, particularly <laughs> difficult cavern or something. I was like, it's the what's tears. Like, what are you, what are you doing
1: here, man? I, I think it's, it's one of those things. There, there's a, there's an old sort of saw about like, you know, movies that have these like unseen um, uh, sort of universes. There's a lot of stuff in star Wars like that, where they just kind of toss off mention to one thing or another. And you don't necessarily know what the, the Kessel run is or, you know any of this other oh, clone wars or anything like that but y- you kind of just accept it as part of the universe of the movie yeah. and that's the, that's the kind of thing i think is going on with the with the devil's teardrop and a lot of the arborea institute specific stuff i mean it's really it's it's universe building it just shows you the edges of the universe and then you have to fill in the blanks with your imagination
0: yeah the devil's teardrop was what was strange for me though because all of the other arborea stuff was based in either Psychology or parapsychology right, like there's no room in that really, for a knife
1: right or yeah, yeah exactly S- like a magical or ceremonial knife right. right, so
0: then you get the feeling that or at least the the feeling that I got was that this is something that you know there's this undertone, and i it's never answered um there's certainly a pretty aggressive hint after the post credit or after the credits, but the Nile did actually commune with something. Mm-hmm. Like that, that there's this possibility that there is this thing that he came into contact with. And it's not, it's not made explicitly clear whether that's him doing that rationalization that I was talking about before, or if he actually did come into contact with something. And we do get a couple of hints of it where, like when he gets a call on the cell phone, or when he, cell phone, when he gets the call on the phone that he hears this, yeah, dad, 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 this yeah, voice like, talking like a, to
1: him. 80s modem sound. Yeah, right? it
0: sounded like yeah, it was like halfway between a modem and uh when Leia comes to rescue Han Solo at Jabba's palace that yet yeah, okay. That sound. Um, <laughs> so, but there's then, a few
1: moments where that happens in the in the film, right? Yeah. And and I I have a few theories on this. There, there's again, the thing the thing about this film is that it since the narrative is so weak, you know, and I can say that it is, it's a weak narrative. Um we really are kind of forced to fill in a lot of the blanks on motivations, on, um, you know, connecting up uh, cause and effect. And I feel, and this is just my theory, I feel like that that sort of weird modem sound, I feel like that might be the sentient, not those disembodied suits, because one of them visits Elena and injects her in these, I think, near the end of the first third of the the film. And I, I feel like they are some kind of like uh, subsequent experiment that the Arborea Institute did after this Blackpool experiment with uh, Niall and Elena. And I feel like there's something there when it comes to connecting to the entity or being or dimension that Niall saw back in 1966.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, you mentioned that there were gaps in the narrative, or at least it was a weak narrative. Mm. I mean, to to be a little bit more defensive about it not that it's my project so i don't really care but (laughs) my understanding is that there was a a specific decision made where where the director uh how are you cosmodos yeah all right perfect yeah where you know he looked at and said well i mean there is this story and there's definitely a story to all of this but that's not what i want to talk about i want to create the mood and everything like that so i mean do you see that as a shortcoming like does it i I don't i don't i think
1: that the more i watch the film though the more i want to try and ferret out sort of the the the, again those parts of of the narrative that kind of exist outside the frame that uh you know I, i feel like this a lot of times when i see experimental films or you know, avant-garde films wh- where, again, narrative might be secondary to the overall, you know, cinematic experiences, you know, I kind of want to know why, you know, I want to know uh, how did we get here? And, you know, you know, the flashback to 1966 fulfills that to a great extent. But, you know, when you think about entities like the sentionauts, like the mutant that we see in one of the cells, I mean, you know, failed experiments, whatever. So the question I want to ask is why is Niall keeping Elena in the Institute, why is he keeping her in prison there? And what does he want from her? If both of them had a similar experience in the Black Pool, if they both have been given you know, powers or, or you know, uh, you know, experiences uh, beyond the normal, what is Niall exactly trying to get out of her? You- I have a theory, but I'd be interested to hear yours.
0: I think that he's genuine when he tells her that I want to teach you how to how to use these powers i want to help you kind of become your better self but i also think there's an insidious level to it as well where he you know he feels like he was the the originator of this black Mm. goo experience and so anything that comes after that he's got dibs or he's got kind of like a patent on parapsychology now Mm -hmm. so everything needs to kind of be approved and put through his lens first as well i mean he's more of a scientist than or at least we get the impression that he is more so than uh anybody else who's there so i would say
1: even more so than dr arborea who i think yeah. is your sort of classic idealist whereas you know arborea sent nile down there he said go go get the mother load barry i mean you know sort of like this mining kind of industrial sort of language you know of like go in there and exploit this thing you know right
0: so yeah i feel like it's kind of maybe dr arborea like he's uh you know, like, <laughs> like he can use that title by technicality, but he probably yes. shouldn't be practicing medicine. I don't know. I see I see it also as kind of a, a river from firefly kind of situation where mm. they know that you know Elena's reaction to the pool is different than Dr. Niles. Dr. Nile doesn't seem to come back with any kind of psychic capabilities. So there is this kind of fear and wonder that we're not exactly sure what she's capable of. So we want to track it and we want to understand it before we let it loose into the world Yeah, and they're incredibly patient about it the one of the earliest notes we see in dr nile's notebook is that she hasn't shown any signs of and they don't say what it is but hasn't shown any signs in 466 days yeah like that's man like (laughs) if i didn't get the results i wanted in like a week like maybe there's a reason that i'm not a scientist but (laughs) so so i I
1: i have a theory that kind of just came to me as we were talking about it and um so and and it goes back to one of the uh, moments in the movie that I thought was a little too on the nose, which was uh, we see the TV in Nile and his wife's house, and it's airing a speech by President Reagan. Yep. And I don't know if you got if you heard the excerpt of that speech, but it's actually the famous speech he made uh, to announce the uh, uh, Strategic Defense Initiative or Star Wars program. Um, and so what I'm thinking is that in line with a lot of these parapsychological uh researchers in the sixties and seventies who eventually started doing work for the government. I feel like there is sort of like a again, that language of exploitation, like let's make Elena into a weapon. Let's make her into a super weapon, you know, for America, basically. And sure. I, I think it's I think it's um you know again, like, you know, Reagan is there to give us that sense of like 80s paranoia. But uh, you know, in the end, I think that that SDI reference is probably meant to be uh you know something to evoke the the idea that maybe the arborea institute started off as idealistic but much like the hippie to yuppie trajectory you know it 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 turned into something twisted and weird in the in the 80s that uh isn't exactly what its founders intended
0: right yeah when the dungarees start putting on their suits that's right (laughs)
1: exactly exactly but uh you know like i said the the, the, the little touches of, of 80s in this movie that sort of scream 80s, like the Reagan bit, uh, like uh, the, the, the name tag on uh, Niles' uh, sort of uh, puffy insectoid suit. It says Noriega, which is another sort of like very blatant yeah. <laughs> kind of, you know, um, uh, you know sort of Cold War kind of, you know, proxy ally of the uh, United States. And I also like Niles' car – is so like it's it's meant to make us think of like the DeLorean it's meant to make us think of all of those you know like Night Rider like all yeah. of those like you know sort of che so there's a few moments in here that are a little bit again on the nose and cheesy but I think that the they could have picked any speech from Reagan they could have picked the Evil Empire speech they could have picked any number of other um, speeches from the Oval Office but they chose the SDI one I think that's to to get us thinking about uh, Elena as, as as a weapon.
0: Yeah, I think there's something to the movement away from the idealism of the 60s and that it's not even necessarily, I think it just, you know, it it burnt out that they had all this, this passion and all this fire and they did all the hippie stuff. They did all the drugs and then on the other end of it, there was nothing to show for it. It was just, oh, we're still alive. We're still growing into adulthood and that's really poignant with, was it Rosemary? Yes, uh, Dr. Yes. Nile's wife, yes. where it's not even clear at first that they're married until you kind of see their wedding rings. Mm. And she seems to still be embracing some kind of hippie kind of flavors to her life just out sure. of habit. Um, and he's just, he's so done with it. He's so tired of it. Well, he... <laughs> like, it- because, like, like, the example that I'm thinking of is uh, when she says, when she talks about the the food that's left in the fridge, yeah. says, yeah, we've got some brown rice and asparagus just waiting for you. And he yes. basically, like, throws up in his mouth, like, God, God damn it, not again. <laughs> it reminds no. me of, did you see the movie Wanderlust? No. Uh, so it was uh, made by the guys who did uh, made by the same people who did wet hot American summer. Oh, okay. It, it's about this, this intentional community of people, but the, oh, the, right. Alan, the Alan Alda character is one of the founding members. You see him kind of towards the end. Uh, he's hanging out in a diner, eating a burger. Cause he's just like, you know, sometimes you just need a burger and like these people <laughs> need this ideology in their lives. But I understand that kind of once you've lived through it enough, you realize that there's a certain amount of horse Pucky that comes along with it.
1: Well, think about all of the um, the folks who represent that older generation in this movie. Niall takes a um, a pharmaceutical every day, you know, that that seems like a hallucinogen, but it's also obviously mass-produced, so it's sort of like... And it comes from Benway's Pharmacy, which I thought was a re- really great touch. That's a, a Naked Lunch reference, which I thought was really great, Dr. Benway. Um, but Rosemary also seems sedated, and obviously, Dr. Arborea is a smack freak, so... You know, like, they're all enslaved to one form or another of sort of narcotizing, sort of, you know, uh, pharmaceutical, whether I, – I feel like – was there a shot of Rosemary's, like, side table where there was, like, an ashtray with, like, a joint in it? I can't remember, but – it seems like there was some sort of shot that was very dark. That seemed yeah, I like feel like there.
0: Way. I feel like there was like a burnt nugget of something. There. Yeah,
1: exactly. So I think they're all like sort of choosing their own ways to just deny the fact that you know we're in the '80s now. And I yeah, and I think the ones that they choose that the drugs that each of them choose are are, are indicative of, of how they approach it. So you know, Doctor Niles got a mass-produced psychotropic, and you know, Doctor Arborea's dreams of of you know of idealism and his. You know, wanting to see these lovely pictures of Molokai on his, uh, you know, on his projector are indicative of him being in a dream world, like an opiate state. And, um, uh, you know, Rosemary is still sticking to her brown rice, asparagus and pot. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it, it's it's inter- it's it's basically three different ways that this the 60s generation could have gone.
0: Yeah, you know? it was uh, it was upsetting to see for Dr. Niall that when he was taking these drugs, he's, he pops them four at a time. And oh yeah are, yeah these are not small pills like he's he's worked his tolerance up for that well
1: because you know eventually potency of one of these things is gonna is gonna lessen and lessen as you uh are as you get hooked by the uh by the big pharmaceutical company i mean who knows you know whether that's a arborea institute product or not but uh i i like the idea that there's uh, the, uh the, he's he's sort of um hooked on something maybe his own institute developed you know what i mean it's it's uh so the kind of Cronenbergian kind of uh, of reference there.
0: Yeah, I actually didn't. It didn't occur to me that Doctor Arboria was. I, I read that scene as unassisted suicide. I didn't realize well, he, that he was. Uh, he
1: he, a, he says something about not wanting to show the track marks, so he's obviously been injecting up to this point. But yes, sure. he that was a hot shot or some kind of you know overdose or whatever right. um, meant to kill him. And I thought that scene where he's watching everything on the screen. Another great '70s sci-fi movie, *Soylent Green*. Um, there's those uh, government-sponsored euthanasia centers where old people can go and, and get lethally injected and, and watch a beautiful scene unfold of a of a green world that they once had. You know, so I think that's another. You know, check that off the list of of, uh, of references Cosmotos makes to classic science fiction from the '70s
0: you know you started off asking me about kind of Dr. Niall's relationship with Elena and mm. I mean since we're talking about Dr. Arboria, I mean his relationship or lack of relationship with Elena is pretty troubling because yeah. I mean it, they don't ever say it but I mean it's pretty clear that Dr. Arboria is the father yes. of Elena right? Yes. And, I mean to the point that when he is dying you know her her face and his face are overlapping and she's feeling that and she's feeling this 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 loss of something that even if it hasn't been ever present in her life and it mm-hmm. seems like he's really hiding away from her just you know in his his drugged up travel documentary stupor <laughs> that now she's lost any chance of talking to him mm-hmm. you know this is the last parent that he had or this is the last parent that she had. She knows yep. that she lost the mother, and a fact that everybody very cruelly kind of hangs over her head, yeah, all the time, yeah. Um, which I,
1: which I think is, I think is notable. I, I think the the fact that you know Barry comes back from the other dimension immediately has to kill somebody, and Doctor Arborea basically just just gives him his wife to kill. Um, she's the sacrifice basically that enables. Him to just say, all right, now let's put Elena in the pool. She'll be the promise for a new generation. Obviously, you know, Elena's life is kind of ruined from the start. But, you know, <laughs> she, you know she never had a chance. And the, the, the things that happen around Barry's trip in 66, I think, are more interesting than the trip itself. I, I, I find the, the idea, like I said earlier, of, 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 of Dr. Arborea basically sending Nile on this mission down into this black pool as very, very important, the fact that, you know, his Arborea's wife is there, it, it, his daughter is there, it's meant to be some kind of... It, it It's not just the third eye that's painted on Barry's forehead that tells me this is some kind of, like, a cult ritual, basically.
0: That's the part that I'm having trouble with. And yeah. it's not that I don't believe that that's what happened, because that's what happens on the screen, but, I mean, like, that's mm. the part that I struggle with, is that, you know, you send this guy into this black goo... He comes back and eats out your wife's throat. So then you think, well, now I need a caregiver for my daughter. How about this <laughs> this unknown factor who has shown homicidal tendencies?
1: <laughs> well, if we think about it again on that metaphorical level of, of you know, what did, uh, you know, what did this 60s generation leave for their kids? You know, I mean, again, I'm not not trying to impugn all, all baby boomers here, but. When when you think about sort of like again, I I feel like the choices of of what the substances that Barry is sent down to down into is is meaningful. I think the that phrase mother load is meaningful. I think there's an ecological parable here. I think it's ta- it's it's talking about what kind of world this generation is going to leave the generations after it. I think there's I think there is a petroleum metaphor here. I th- I think that there is some kind of and if if not petroleum, then some again some kind of general ecological um, uh, and and ex, and sort of exploitation of the earth um, theme that runs through the movie. Because I think the thing that happens at the end of the of the film when Elena escapes the one of the very first things she does to get she gets out of the arboretum, she goes and sleeps on the ground on the earth. And how does she kill Barry? She kills Barry by tangling his feet up in the earth and smashing his head on a rock. It's almost like it's 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 like Gaia's revenge almost. <laughs> I I think that there is a in in the midst of all the generational stuff and 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 all the visual cues we've talked about, all the color cues. I think there's a very profound uh, ecological message here that's again maybe not on the surface, but it, is subsumed in in sort of the idea of you know. Go down, exploit this thing, bring this black tar up from the earth, and uh, we're gonna leave it to our kids by just baptizing them in it. That's that's my wacky theory on the uh, uh, ecology and, and pollution and, and global warming uh, side of uh, beyond the black rainbow.
0: No, I like that a lot. I mean, like right. Actually, after-
1: what what is a black rainbow but like the the sheen of oil on the ground when you see it spilled on the pavement? You know, it's black and it's got a rainbow in it. So maybe I don't know. Maybe.
0: You might have just cracked this. <laughs> um
1: yeah. if not if it's not the, you know, if it's not uh, the primary one, it's certainly one of I think the metaphors that's going on here.
0: Yeah, there is this whole fight between the the chemical and the natural and mm. you know, if you do if you do try to claim nature and you try to think that yes. you have the connection to it after trying to exploit it and trying to grab it, then you know that that very well may come back to bite you. I mean, and, I, think I, mean that, that, and that, I think that that plays into the gender politics of it as well, that, you know, you have these these men <laughs> who are entirely imposing upon and crushing the growth and spirit of this woman. Yeah. And not allowing her a chance to become anything. You know, that you know, that's exactly what she does, too. She turns around and and is able to destroy her oppressors and break through the concrete.
1: Yeah. You know, that's that's really good. I was actually gonna, I was just going to say, like, you know, Dr. Nile is kind of like the quintessential you know, Western male scientist Cartesian sort of like twisted and 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 made into kind of like a monster. But at the same time, like you're right, and and the first person that Elena kills is another woman. It, it's almost like a metaphor for patriarchy. You know, sort of setting women against other women. And what do, why does Elena blow up Margot's head? The Margot, the the attendant, um, because. Uh, elena had been given a contraband photo of her own mother so it's it's three women all being manipulated by niall and all being pitted against each other essentially women don't women don't make it uh, you know out of this movie unscathed apart from sort of elena's final triumph which we can we can talk about that we talk about the end meaning of the ending of the movie but
0: they are all they're all tools of at least as far as he's concerned they're all they're all tools to be used for various purposes. And I mean, I went into a conversation very much like this just last week talking to uh, Caroline about Ex Machina. I just you know,
1: listened how... to that episode today, actually, and, on uh, the way home yeah,
0: from work. Yeah. The uh, the dangers that can come from, you know, making assumptions and uh, and forgetting that people are people. And, you know, just because they are just because they represent a gender doesn't mean that uh, that. I but, I'm, but then, I'm once but, again, f- no, f- no, no, over no my I think we're onto something.
1: <laughs> I think we're onto something here, though, because um, so Margot finds out about the sinister nature of the institute by this little blinking light, right? And inside it is like a drawer with like a uh, a dossier full of like experiments, and really profoundly, what you end up seeing near the end are these really kind of like vivid, like old timey, kind of almost like. Um, etching type pictures of women and women's reproductive systems and like um you know there's obviously something about elena's birth maybe um that maybe she was meant to go into the pool and that kind of thing but i feel like if we're talking about sort of men controlling women's uh not only lives but like reproductive systems i mean there could be you know an abortion um parable going on here as well and sort of I talked about Elena being sunk into the black oil as kind of like a baptism. I mean, th- there's definitely this anxiety around reproduction. And if you do you remember what uh, Barry said to the to the uh, second kid that he killed, he was he just wanted to know whether he he fucked Elena. You know, that's that that's that the language that he uses as he's holding the devil's teardrop up to this kid's face. And you know, I think that there is a Definite thread of anxiety about women's sexuality going throughout this uh, film. Uh, again, not surprising considering the debt that Cosmatos owes Cronenberg. But um, you know, I think it's very much um, putting the uh, sort of onus of that of that sort of patriarchal symbol into Nile, into the devil's teardrop. I mean, you know, that's pretty phallic. I mean, it's it's it, again. There's multiple ways you can go with this. With a movie that's so laden with symbols, you can pretty much interpret it a number of different ways. Should we talk about the ending? Should we talk about the... I'm talking about the, the very ending. So there's two endings. There's there's the ending where we see Elena kind of stumble onto a Spielbergian kind of suburb where TVs are flickering lightly inside of all of these homes. And then you get through the credits. You see a little tip of the hat to Buckaroo Banzai at the end, which I loved. Um, and then you get this very short 10-second scene. What did you make of that?
0: That's the scene that if this whole movie is intended to just kind of be made out of respect for movies of the 80s, sure. then, I mean, on the one hand, it could just be, well, we've wrapped up this horror movie, so now we have to throw in this thing at the end where maybe the horror is not over. Question
1: mark. The end? Question mark. Exactly.
0: Right? <laughs> or, I mean, the other the other side of it is that that means that they're was another external force that was causing a lot of these things because that or at least what i think it is is that's somebody calling on the phone to Nile through one of these daft punk robots and <laughs> and really saying like are you there are you there as if there's there's somebody missing so there's mm. either something alien or something proto natural or or something going on there that h- hints that you know there was kind of an overarching plot to all of this, yep. which I mean, that on the one hand, it makes Elena's escape even more triumphant because she's not just fighting against these two oppressive men and this whole this whole system. She's now fighting against this enormous conspiracy. conspiracy t- yeah, <laughs> um, but it's also like I don't want that dangled in front of me if you're not going to give me the tools to figure out anything else that's happening, right?
1: And see, I love the ambiguity of the ending because we see like a little a little sentient knot kind of lying on a, on a shag carpet, like a 70s rec room shag carpet. And all I could think of – have you seen Time Bandits? No. Time Bandits is all about this adventure that this kid goes on uh, throughout time and space. By the end of the movie, it's it's implied that it's all a dream because we see – all the different historical periods that he supposedly traveled to in the toys in his room, basically. Right. And I feel like this was a almost a direct callback to that. Um, but it's also obvious at the end of the film that the that the adventures did happen to him on some level. Um, I don't want to spoil the ending because you haven't seen it, but it, it's it, the ambiguity is there. And I think that the idea that this sentient action figure is just kind of lying on this shag rug gives you one of two options you could say that this entire thing was in someone's imagination kind of cheesy and stupid but whatever or you could say it's kind of like a meta statement on what Cosmetos was trying to do with all of this nostalgia in the movie you know what I mean like I'm playing with my action I'm nine years old in 1983 playing with my action figures in the rec room and coming up with a story so there's a couple of different ways I, I think you can interpret it or you could just say it's a really meaningless sort of 10 second kind of snippet meant to kind of get you talking like we are now and it doesn't
0: really mean anything. I don't know. <laughs> I don't like that one because I don't want to feel like he won. But... <laughs> <laughs> oh. but, I, but I like what you said about the, uh, about it could just be kind of a, a kid's imagination because I think you brought this up already that so much of this movie was him f- allowing his imagination to fill in the gaps of reading the backs of videotapes that he wasn't allowed to rent from blockbuster just yeah. kind of imagining the worst thing that it could possibly be. And this is him putting that on film for, for all of us. It's, I, it's... I like that.
1: Yeah. And I, again, I, I do think so much of, so much of this film exists outside of those boundaries. One thing we haven't talked about is how they keep um, Elena's powers under control with these sort of, uh, really cool lit pyramids in the uh, in the basement of the Arborea Institute. Yeah, of course
0: it's crystals. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. It's crystal power. It's pyramid power. There's even a point where they superimpose. I think it's Elena's eye on the pyramid. So Illuminati confirmed. That's great. Um, <laughs> um, but again, like th- that whole idea of like containing your power in a pyramid, it goes back to a lot of New Age and, and 1960s, you know, uh, paranormal research. Um, the idea that you could preserve like like food and like other things that decay inside a pyramid longer um but the pyramids also an obelisk and it, that's a, and that's another male symbol of sort of control and marking out boundaries and all of that stuff and I, and i i i i wanted to kind of bring it back to what we were talking about with sort of the meta ending which is you know it is is the pyramid that lights up with the same sort of light as Elena's room is that meant to be Again, remember I talked about the 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 flickering effect of her psychic powers being like busting through the the frames of the film. You know, mm-hmm. is is the pyramid like the white of the movie screen? You know, since it's bright white, um, when it turns down, it takes away uh, the inhibitors put on Elena's power. So all of a sudden, when you shut that film off, you're able to bust through sort of the the uh, the boundaries of of the of the of the film frame. So. There, there could be something going on there as well. Or I, again, I could be taking it way too
0: far. <laughs> <laughs> that, that does read kind of almost like as a like a self-loathing of film at that point. Like it's when we finally, when when the movie screen turns off, that's turns. when things get real. But, I like that though. But this is also his debut film. <laughs> but <laughs> on the other hand, this is also, I mean, it's, it's it's important that he's the son of a director. Yeah. Right. His father directed such. Awful movies as Rambo 2. I hate, I hate Rambo 2 so much. Wow. Oh, I, I don't have
1: strong feelings about one way or the other, but that's kind of interesting. What about Cobra?
0: I've never seen Cobra. Oh, but... yeah.
1: Well, yeah. Cobra's a classic. He was also... Um, uh, George Cosmitos, Panos's father, was called upon to finish Tombstone, which actually is a great movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't his project to start with, but he was called on as kind of a hired gun, no pun intended, uh, to come in and finish it, um, but you know, yeah, I mean, like he he uh, Pannos Cosmetos acknowledges this influence of his father. You know, he started mm-hmm. off in Italy in the in the '70s and came to America, and as you say, kind of did, you know, the the Stallone schlock tour basically of the uh, these movies in the '80s, and you know, his mom, uh, uh, Panos Cosmetos' mom, was a sculpt sculptor. So, I mean that's where all of the, that's where a lot of the weird visuals of this movie must come from.
0: Yeah. It's, you know, I think that there's then weight to your, your possible reading that there is this kind of desire to get away from film, but you know, also this is the language that he speaks. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's a a difficult struggle. And if that is what he's going through, and I I think that there's, there's arguments to be said that there are since, I mean, he says it himself, then that, makes sense within this movie like it's so much like other movies that we've seen before and it's so evocative of i mean half of what we've said has been oh and it's like this and it's like this and it's like this yes but it's also none of them and refuses to be a typically watchable movie like he wants yeah he wants to do both and it's really up to i think every individual person is going to have to decide for themselves whether or not that's something of worth for them because this movie on you know i i think i put too much stock in rotten tomatoes but i mean it's i'm i'm fascinated i'm fascinated by the concept of like aggregated ratings like what okay. is the you know what can everybody agree on what can everybody disagree on and this movie is split at exactly it's 50%. 50% yeah so exactly, that's, that's half of the critics have had a positive response. Half the critics <laughs> have had a negative response. It's it's perfect. And even reading a lot of the reviews, it's the people who are positive about it. They're like, I don't know what was going on, but I think some people might like it. And the negative <laughs> reviews are are no more helpful. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it was glacial and i don't know what's going on so it's just kind of you get to decide for yourself am i going to find any value in this or no because you're certainly not going to go into it and be entertained
1: yeah i i guess i i you know i think about sort of again like i talked a little bit about like ex, you know experimental and avant-garde film i mean there's a certain level of depth you can go to and you can get into some really abstract stuff i mean ultimately this this film is, is as you say as we've talked about grounded in 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 the in the sort of visuals and and traditions of so many movies from the 60s 70s and 80s that it's it's not really it's not avant-garde it's not something new it it's and it's not even a regurgitation of the old i think it, it's it's trying to be i think that that kind of art film that that appeals to the senses directly uh you know again Given that it's dressed up in this genre sort of um, uh, cloak, you know, it, it, it's it's definitely got some some influences there. But I I feel like I mean I don't want to compare I don't want to compare this film. I mean I I really like Beyond the Black Rainbow a lot, but I don't want to compare it to something like Eraserhead. And yet, and yet, <laughs> Eraserhead was a debut that took many many years for a you know uh, somebody David Lynch who started off as a visual artist, you know did a few short films, and then made a movie that took him two, two and a half years to make, full of weird, you know, visual effects that was basically about his anxiety about his daughter being born, you know, and here we've got a movie that could be about the anxiety of parental influence artistically, you know, um, and each of them in kind of took things that had come before and and, and invented a new visual vocabulary for them, so... I guess what I'm saying is I'm really anxious for Panos Cosmatis' next film to come out. I really want to see what he's going to do next. Um, You know, uh, David Lynch after uh, Eraserhead did uh, The Elephant Man, I believe, and uh, that led to kind of his dalliance with Hollywood with Doom, so let's hope it doesn't follow that exact trajectory. (laughs) Um, But uh, I'm really anxious to see what he'll do next because you're right, this this might be the only movie he ever makes just because he's gotten all the stuff off his chest that he wants to, but I feel like he's probably got some more interesting stuff to say, and I'd be really interested to see what he's got up his sleeve. Let's talk about the soundtrack real quick. The music also evokes a very, you know, clear time period—the sort of synth scores of the '70s and '80s by, uh, you know, Tangerine Dream, um, uh, John Carpenter as both director and composer. I mean, it this this music. I mean, I think he just uh, picked a side project of a rock band from Vancouver, the keyboardist. Um, you know, knew how to work within this idiom. Um, I love the soundtrack so much. It really hits a lot of those. It, 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 it adds to that nostalgic feeling that is so central to why I like it so much. And it's, um, it's fantastic. Uh, if you have a chance to, you don't get a chance to, to watch the movie, but you do get a chance to check out the soundtrack. I would highly, highly recommend it.
0: Yeah, it, it's more of the same where we talked about with the costuming and things like that, where yeah. it's, very much of its time, but not to the point of self-parody. Yes. Like this isn't, this isn't Grand Theft Auto Vice City, right? Like we're not, we're not being beaten over the head with really (laughs) gaudy 80s music. It's just.
1: Now now you've got me thinking about Barry Nile dancing to Huey Lewis in the news or something like that in his house and explaining why (laughs) their their album is so great. (laughs) The,
0: uh, where it did kind of, where it was a little bit jarring is the, uh, the closing credits theme. Because all of a sudden it snaps into this way more poppy, like it. It sounded like "Whip It" to me. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. And I was like, "What? What is happening right I, now?" Because- I,
1: I feel like a lot of times in the '80s, like especially horror movies, they would put the pop single over the closing credits because people are starting to kind of stand up, and then they kind of hear it and they go want to go and buy like you know the cassette or whatever. I feel <laughs> I feel like that was a tradition in the '80s was to, you know, you use your atmospheric stuff for the opening credits and during the movie, and then. In the closing credits, you kind of put the single up there, you know what I mean? And then people go, "Hey, I could let's go to the mall next to the you know, multiplex and go yeah. buy the cassette." I, I'd have to research that and see if that actually did happen in movies. But again, I was a kid in the '80s. I don't think I saw a lot of these type of movies in the theater. But I feel like I feel like that was a thing. So we'll we'll we'll, we'll I'll I'll do a little research and maybe I can pop something up on the blog afterwards.
0: It was it was so it was just not fitting at all. And now I'm trying no. to imagine that. It's like, I don't know, like the Bangles have this number one hit off of the Beyond the Black Rainbow soundtrack. <laughs> the soundtrack and then all these yeah. really poor, confused youth <laughs> go out and buy this tape and then they buy the movie when it comes out on VHS. and That was always a... the
1: thing with soundtracks is that they'd have one or two pop songs. Then you'd get like the score for the rest of the the tracks on it and you'd be really disappointed. You'd be like... I thought all the songs were like the song over the opening and closing credits, and yeah. no, it's just orchestral stuff throughout the rest of the tape. I don't want this. This is crap.
0: <laughs> I came for the Brian Adams. Now I'm listening to actual Robin Hood music. This there you awful. go. Yes, yeah. perfect. Exactly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> did this? Did this give you any nostalgic feelings? You're younger than me, so maybe, maybe not. But
0: like, yeah. I mean, I don't want to. I don't. I, I'm probably going to cut this out so I don't sound like no, an that's asshole. Fine. Yeah. But like, I know of the '80s by reputation.
1: Yeah, I know. <laughs>
0: right? Yeah, like, yeah. Like, I I was born... I mean, in I talk
1: about generational stuff so much on my podcast. I mean, the fact that Rob and I can find so much hair splitting over four years of difference just tells you how obsessed I am with that right. kind of stuff. Yeah, and I mean, I, I was born in 87. So, yeah. oh, so cool. I
0: mean, like, by the time I was aware of the 80s as a concept, it was a joke to but, me. But, I didn't... But, like,
1: but have you seen this trend? In in I think a lot of these filmmakers are in their late twenties and early thirties, and they're going back to the eighties and just mining this, this this decade for, you know. I, I mean, there's Turbo Kid. I talked about them in the notes. There's Turbo Kid. There's Kung Fury. Like, and it seems to be like a hip thing for, I would even say post millennials at this point to really get into the eighties. I mean, I you know I wasn't into the fifties when I was like twenty <laughs> years old. You know what I mean? Or yeah. the sixties for that matter. You know? Yeah. Um, But I think everybody always gets kind of attached to the stuff they just missed. Like, that's what my podcast is all about. I mean, there's all this stuff that happened in the early 70s that I wasn't around for. And yet I'm kind of obsessed by it.
0: Coincidentally enough, uh, in a couple of weeks, I've got somebody coming on who said that Kung Fury changed my life and I need to come talk about
1: it. <laughs> I'm definitely going to listen to that one, because I want to see somebody try to justify that movie to me. Are you serious?
0: Oh, Yeah. God.
1: I, I'm, I'm, see, this is what I mean. This is what I mean about how Beyond the Black Rainbow gets it right, and movies like that. I I, I didn't quite get through it.
0: I think that you, know, you, you said it right, that it's about how you experienced it in the first place. Yes. Because I experienced the 80s as something that has been... It's either ridiculed or the good stuff has been deemed a classic. Yes. yes and that's yes. where we're at. And it's both concurrently and you can do both concurrently. And that's what Kung Fury is. It's the fun and simplicity of side-scrolling video games and dumb action movies, but also unforgiving with how stupid it all was at the same time.
1: Well, you know, again, like, I mean, but I even look at a movie like Drive, like, again, that's more like Beyond the Black Rainbow when that these stylistic choices to kind of evoke a period. It doesn't take place in the 80s, but it's got the, the Kaminsky soundtrack and it's got like, you know, it's very neon. It's, you know, it's obviously got that influence to it. And yet I can't stand drive either, you know? <laughs> it, it it just seems so hollow to me, you know? It just seems all style and no substance. And I think that, you know, again, like I'm not a purist when it comes to nostalgia. I mean, if if I can get nostalgic about a, you know fairly disposable you know 1970s and 80s sitcom you know there's hope for everyone but at the same time i i think that i think that you have to come come at it with a with a healthy sense of context a tiny bit of respect and you know generally speaking just like like you're saying like if you find stuff cool about like you know a period um the culture and the art of a period that's great and if you want to try and like rehabilitate and and uh, you know reuse it i think that's great i think cultural bricolage is 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 fantastic i think you should you should scoop up the the remnants of older periods and recycle them i think that's great but i think that there's a difference between doing it cynically and a difference and and the difference between doing it cynically and doing it like sincerely and authentically i i I, that's just me
0: yeah that's fair (laughs) So I think that's as good a place as any to wrap up this conversation uh, the way that I always like to do so since we watched this movie on Netflix. I want to know what star rating this got in your own personal Netflix profile. So as a reminder, one star means you hated it. Two stars means didn't like it. Three stars is liked it. Four stars is really liked it. And five stars means you loved it. As well, if you want to tack it along with it, if uh, there's an MVP for the movie, who made this black rainbow maybe shine a little more <laughs> iridescently than it than it would have otherwise
1: okay well um, if I remember correctly I did give this five stars when I watched it even the first time even when I thought the pacing was slow even when I thought you know get on with it um, because it just blew it just blew me away so much visu- visually you know it just it just um, it made me want to watch it again and I didn't watch it again right away but I definitely uh, you know, caught it within the next couple of months again on Netflix before it disappeared on me. Um, <laughs> MVP. Well, you know, what's interesting. We haven't talked a lot about the, um, I mean, we, we've we talked a lot about Elena as a character, but um, you know, Ava Allen, who plays Elena in this film uh, probably has maybe five or six lines of dialogue, but she is required to do a lot with her face and her body. Um just without using dialogue and you know there are some great and they and the camera spends a long time on her and i i, I don't know if she's done other stuff it feels like though she was asked to do the most here um you know uh, uh michael rogers who plays uh barry nile definitely had to carry the movie um because it's mostly told through his sort of a- actions and words but I feel like there was a lot being asked of uh, Ava Allen. So I'm going to give her my MVP.
0: Fantastic. Um, My rating is going in as a four star. Uh, I think that part of that is I just, I don't want to feel dumb and feel like I didn't (laughs) get it. Um, So I'm just telling, no, it's a, I mean, it's, it's for me, it's, it seems really unique it's not like anything that I've seen before and I enjoyed the journey of watching it because for the first half or so before we cut back to 1966 mm. I I was asking a lot of okay I see what's happening but there's uh, so many times it's just so what? so what so what so what like why are you telling me this like it's a girl <laughs> in a room I just watched Ex Machina I just watched Under the Skin like I, right. I've seen this I've seen this faster <laughs> not that I yeah <laughs> Not that, not that under the skin is uh, particularly fast paced, right? Yeah. But but then yeah. once we get to the uh, once we get once we go back to the '60s and it becomes a, a different visual experience. Like that trip is a trip. Yes. It's it's all of a sudden you're watching Pink Floyd's The Wall or something. Yes, where, yes. Or the where...
1: last bit of 2001. You know. Right. Through the yeah. through the um uh through the monolith. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's all shapes and things running backwards, and it's no longer just. A static shot of something, and then for some reason it going into slow motion because apparently they figured out how to do that with the camera. Um, <laughs> so then from that point on, I I was much more engaged with it, mm. and and I was fast. I was way more fascinated by what was happening. So I I appreciated the experience of that. So four stars for that. And then my MVP is Michael Rogers for very much the same reason. So until that trip happens, mm. I found him to be I, again I thought that he was a terrible actor <laughs> because. I the character seemed inconsistent and inscrutable yes. and then as we peel back the layers and as we see that he's not inscrutable he's just well I mean he is but for different reasons yeah not not because of bad characterization but because of a an inconceivable experience that he's had mm. and having that come across through these facial expressions and then again transforming into his true self at the end, when he can finally just stop all this pretense, yep. it it he goes through these kind of three stages, and mm. you go for the ride along the along the entire path. So I thought that Michael Rogers did a did a fantastic job with this movie.
1: Yeah, I agree. What, my last piece of advice: watch it again in a few months. Watch it yeah. for a second time. See if you get anything different out of it because that was the moment where I was watching it the second time, where I just realized, oh yeah, there's a lot more going on here than I originally found.
0: All right, Mike, well I really appreciate you coming on and doing this. Um do you want to tell do you want to take a minute, tell people about your show? Because honestly, it's it's one of my favorite shows on the airwaves right now. I've just gone through and cleaned out a whole bunch of old podcasts that I've just given up on. But uh um, Hold My Order Terrible Dresser is uh you know, I'm I'm going back and listening to the all. So yeah, tell us a little about it.
1: Thanks so much, Dylan. I really appreciate it. Hold My Order Terrible Dresser was a, a thing I put together with my friend Rob McDougal about a year ago. Uh, we both love WKRP in Cincinnati. It's a sitcom we both watched in syndication after it had been on uh, network TV. Um, we realized that it might be slightly thin gruel to do a complete rewatch of a 1970s and 80s sitcom, um, even though we love it. So we do a lot of talking about what's going on in uh, culture at the time of the episode, what's going on in uh, politics and history. and And really, it's just a way for us to kind of like Delve back into nostalgia, kind of in a in a again, in a constructive way, uh, kind of like what was done in Beyond the Black Rainbow. Um, check us out at holdmyorderterribledresser.com. Uh, we're also available on iTunes and Stitcher. Um and uh we'll hopefully get a link from you guys uh once this episode goes up and you can find it on the blog. But uh yeah, definitely check us out. We've got uh our uh, last few episodes of season two are going to be going up in the next few weeks. So uh, uh, definitely a good time to jump on board.
0: Fantastic. Uh, we'll be sure to link to your website on our blog post for this episode. Um, and I just want to take a minute to, uh, you know, I, I kind of told you my opinions about it, but even if you've never seen WKRP in Cincinnati, that's not, you don't need to have that context to be able to enjoy the show. It's really two guys and sometimes a guest sitting back and talking about stuff and talking about things that matter and just using pop culture as the lens through which to see the world, which is the whole point of everything that we're doing here. (laughs) And it's the whole point of pop culture in the first place. So it's a fantastic conversation to join in on. And I know for me, anytime I go and I try to look up a clip, I I would much rather be listening to you guys talk about it than actually watching the show. So
1: (laughs) That's okay. Like I said, you know, it's, it, It's 35 years old now. Oh my god, it's 35 years old now. Uh, You know, it it can be allowed to not age gracefully. But yeah, we, you you know, when you grew up, when you come home from school and you turn on the TV and WKRP is on like three episodes in a row you're going to have some pretty strong nostalgic feelings about it. So that's kind of probably where we sit on
0: that. First. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> well, thanks again, Mike. I've had a lot of fun having this conversation. I appreciate you uh, expanding my horizons and having this movie become now a thing that I've seen and a thing I'm that I've uh, talked about at length. So. Thrilled. I'm
1: thrilled and thrilled. And thanks so much for having me on again. And uh, uh, yeah, go watch Beyond the Black Rainbow, everyone. It's a real
0: trip. All right. Fantastic. <laughs> that's everything for this week from the netflix podcast if you like what you heard today head on over to netflixblog.wordpress.com to check out the rest of the netflix content like show notes articles reviews as well as a weekly look at what's new on canadian netflix you can also find us on our social media platforms we're on facebook as netflix twitter at netflix pod or my personal twitter at dylan clarkmore and we're on tumblr and soundcloud as netflix podcast if you'd like to support the show there are a few ways you can do so You can start by heading over to iTunes and subscribing so that each week's episode comes straight to you. While you're there, drop a rating and a review to let us know what you think. You can also contribute directly to Netflix by way of our Patreon campaign. Whether it's for the rewards like shoutouts on the podcast or customized content, or if you'd just like to see us keep doing what we're doing, you can pledge your support over at patreon.com. The Netflix podcast is produced and edited by me, Dylan Clark Moore. The theme music was provided by Zach Moore. Speaking of music, the piece you're hearing right now is another track off the album Four City Series, Volume 2. This one is called Chanko by artist Chinoski. I'll be sure to include proper credit and links in today's episode's show notes. Thank you so much for checking out this week's episode of the Netflix podcast, and be sure to join me here next week for a whole new conversation about a whole new movie from the Netflix catalog. Because even if you think you've seen it all, baby, you ain't streamed nothing yet.